This is Barbara Glickstein with HealthCetera. We're all pretty familiar with the physical toxicity people experience from cancer and some of the treatments, pain, fatigue, nausea, weight loss, and there are other side effects. Talking about the physical symptoms of cancer is one thing. When someone is diagnosed with cancer and their life is on the line, nobody wants to talk about money. It's actually really hard to talk about money. Studies say that 70% of patients with cancer are worried about their ability to pay for their treatment, and they are two and a half times more likely compared with the general public because of medical debt to file for bankruptcy. From what I've read, it hits young adults undergoing cancer treatment even harder. Dr. Lauren Gazal is a family nurse practitioner, nurse scientist, and associate professor at the University of Rochester School of Nursing. She was just recently named a 2023 Wunderkund by Stat News for her innovative research on the financial impacts of cancer on adolescents and young adults. Thank you, Dr. Gazal, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So your research is focused on what the term that I just learned from actually asking you to um, hearing you speak and then asking you to join me today is financial toxicity. Can you explain what that is and how it impacts a person who is going through cancer treatment? Yes, of course. So financial toxicity is a term that emerged in the literature around 2013. Um, but we know that financial toxicity or financial hardship has been a challenge and an issue for um, patients with cancer and their caregivers and families for decades upon decades. When you think of Fitzhugh Mullen, Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen and um, uh, Seasons of Survival, he talks about the challenges he himself was a young adult with lymphoma um, and the challenges of working while undergoing treatment or worrying about his finances. And so financial toxicity as a concept um, combines this financial hardship or financial burden. So an increase in what you're paying out of pocket, increase of what you're paying towards your, your not only cancer treatment, but also access to care, um, transportation costs, you know, um, getting to your, your, um, appointments. And then also this, this added layer of distress and worry about your finances. So it's not just the cost of care, but then the worry of care as it relates to your cancer treatment, um, and, um, and oncology care. And as you mentioned, yes, there are, um, there are, demographics um, that financial toxicity affects uh, more than others or more significantly than others. Um, I focus on adolescent and young adult cancer survivors. So those diagnosed between the ages of 15 to 39 years old. Um, and I think of cancer survivors as being and use the American Cancer Society definition of survivorship as the time of diagnosis until the end of life. And so when I say cancer survivors, I mean across the the survivorship spectrum. And um, we know that AYAs are hit, um, are hit, you know, uniquely financially um, for a multitude of reasons, a few of which include just the transition. If you think of, you know, a lot of insurance plans have you on your parents' insurance until 26. So you're possibly in between insurance coverage. You also could, I mean, we think of the AYAs as um, a highly mobile population too, perhaps moving away for college or, you know, for their first jobs, you know, first, um, 
first homes outside of their childhood home. And then um, they're they're pretty vulnerable with this period of time where they're just tr- starting to establish themselves financially. And so we think of things at, you know, the employer or work level that can protect you financially. When we think of um, disability insurance, or we think of even things like tenure in an academic market, um, those things take time to build up and have that security. So, um, so when I focus on AYAs, I try to adge- address all of these, all of these challenges from this multi-level perspective and looking beyond just what is it that the young adult cancer survivor has to do independently of everything else? What is it that that our healthcare system can help with? What is it that our employers can help with and address? What is it that our um, our partners and caregivers and family members can also do to address and mitigate financial toxicity? Um, all with, you know, the ultimate um, end goal and the, 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 um, the outcome being to improve one's quality of life, improve one's health outcomes as well. Um, and also to, to decrease any other financial hardship throughout the course of one's life. As we know, AYAs in particular are living longer than ever before. Um, so it's a, it's a complex topic. Um, but like you said in the introduction, it's really, it's, it's a really unique time to be able to talk about it because talking about money and finances as it relates to health and especially, um, illness and cancer has been not a, topic of conversation on the table. And so I'm trying to capitalize on that and also really shine a light on this um, this vulnerable group of young cancer survivors. You know, it's interesting um, I'm, to hear it's uh, just under 10 years that this has become an area of research and an area that you're researching in because one, as you, as we both now have acknowledged, it's not part of the culture of accessing healthcare until, unless it's a personal thing where either you're not going to get the healthcare, you're going to get less than what you need and, or, um, you're going to burden yourself to be in financial debt. And so it went from being sort of a social political issue to now being an integrated issue in the delivery of healthcare and the system of healthcare. But how integrated is it? Uh, 10 years is a short time in a, a, a system that's entrenched and not necessarily open to new ideas. So where would you say, especially in that young adult uh, population, where at 15 you might still be seeing a pediatric oncologist, and then I know it's still a fairly new field of when do you stop seeing that oncologist and move into the adult oncologist perhaps, or is there a bridge? And so that's probably a second topic, but how integrated is this concept now? And are people really, are providers asking those they care for, how are you managing to pay for this? Yeah. Oh, those are such great questions. And I want you to be on my research team going forward because I think they're important questions to consider in any research design with financial toxicity and in, in any age group, but specifically AYAs, because um, it's, it was just, um, I believe in 2009 that the Institute of Medicine put out the um, Lost in Transition report for AYAs. And I think I may have gotten that name. Um, I don't know if that's completely accurate, but actually devoting um, a specific team of researchers and clinicians to look at the the unique needs of adolescents and young adults, because it's not only one's eight, well, it can be, you know, you can be a 18 year old breast cancer survivor who is receiving treatment at an 
uh, adult oncology center, or you can be a 22-year-old lymphoma cancer survivor receiving treatment at a pediatric oncology center. Um, it's really dependent on um, your cancer type too at diagnosis. So that's there. There is this this gray area of um, of treatment um, location that still occurs in it for um, for oncology treatment and care for AYAs. I think to answer a question about where we are, um, I think there is definitely more awareness and acknowledgement that financial hardship and financial toxicity is prevalent among cancer survivors. There is also increased awareness that from um, funding agencies like the NIH, right, and NCI in particular, um, that are, uh, there was just a special call that was um, focused on Address, like, or identifying interventions, multi-level interventions for addressing financial hardship. Because we know we've done so much in the short 10 years. <laughs> we've done so much, um, um, in a research perspective, uh, describing the problem and describing it across all ages of cancer survivors. Um, we're just starting to look at financial toxicities effects on caregivers and on the family unit. Um, but we really, we really need to be looking at interventions now and, and also, um, screening and measurement for financial toxicity. I just had a conversation with somebody this past week and I asked go on like, how do, how do you know when somebody's like financially toxic? Is that even like, can we say that? What is that? What is that level? Um, and there's some, there, there was a grading level that was in an early publication, I believe by Kara, um, who looked at levels um, or, or grading of financial toxicity as it, and it was all a subjective measure. Um, but then there's been a cost measure, the comprehensive score for financial toxicity that has been used a lot in, in research studies to, um, to measure one's financial hardship. Um, we also know that there's some researchers looking at adapting that specifically for younger populations, because there's some questions that aren't really, you know, appropriate for the young popu the younger population. And so um I have a colleague at Columbia who's looking at um again adapting that or introducing a financial toxicity screener that would be a two question um, um assessment on, you know, how to how should we follow up with this person after? And with that then comes how do we address it? If somebody does screen positive for financial toxicity, or if we know that this is prevalent in, um, in a specific institution or a specific population. And so there has been more of a, a awareness and I would say, um, a focus on integrating financial counselors and financial navigators, um, into not only research studies, but into the conversation of like, how are we actually disseminating these resources? Is it something that is only given when people, when patients and their families come to us as clinicians to say, you know, we're really strapped right now, or how much is this going to cost? But we also know that patients haven't directed that type of conversation because of, you know, the stigma of, if I ask this question about how much is my chemotherapy going to cost, will I receive less, like more inferior treatment? Or, you know, will they give me the less, um, uh, you know, the, the, the less, the, you know, less better, um, chemotherapy treatment. And there is this real fear that you will be treated differently as a patient with cancer, um, or as a family member of a patient with cancer because you ask those questions. And so there's, um, a great team at Memorial Sloan Kettering who's done really cool work on costs of conversations. Um, 
specifically in oncology populations. And um, there's also more awareness of being able to being able to connect what is now, you know, pretty siloed cancer centers or academic centers with community organizations who are and have been doing the work to address financial toxicity for years. So organizations like triage cancer, organizations like cancer and careers that are some are legal experts, some are clinicians themselves, researchers um, that have been able to help help patients and their families and also train oncologists, nurses, train social workers with how to navigate these conversations or how to say, you're going to ask me this question. I don't, I don't have an answer to it yet. I don't have a solution to this yet. However, I can refer you to this organization and they can help you talk about how you're disclosing your recent cancer diagnosis with your employer at 22 years old, um, mm-hmm. with a job that just started a few months ago, or, you know, being able to, to, to apply this financial counseling model with really within, um, our current, our current cancer care model models of delivery. Um, so I'll stop there because I know there's a, a lot more I can talk about. But. <laughs> no, um, it's very helpful. And I'm sure that our listeners who are tuned in, they themselves or someone they know and love are have experienced or are currently experiencing a cancer diagnosis as a adolescent or young adult. I certainly do. And um, so, Dr. Gazelle, you're being very helpful about introducing, I think, this concept that may be very new to some folks who are not in a, a treatment um, relationship or at an institution that has integrated it so they can ask for it. It might be there, but um, sometimes still uh, patients and families have to ask this question. So uh, just simply being able to, uh, I think you used a great um, way of saying this, hey, um, I'm a little strapped right now, parking the car in the parking lot when we're here for the four hour treatment is costing us 60 bucks, right? Um, is there any way we can get free parking that'll, that'll really mitigate this weekly charge that we're taking out of our food budget? I mean, these are realities for people and families. We certainly know that. Um, I know here in New York City where I live, uh, people that I know that don't live here that drive in for their care have said that to me. Um, one woman I knew, um, her spouse would sit in the car because the expense of parking for these um, follow-up visits was really hurting them financially in addition to the co-payments and things. So, and then you also mentioned had the definition of a survivor of a person who has had cancer. So this is also a problem about affording uh, treatments months or even years after your initial care. How, how does that, how, how does, does that conversation change? Is there another way of approaching that? What are some of the ideas you have there, uh, Dr. Gazelle? Hmm. It's a great question. And, and I, so I, um, I personally was diagnosed with stage two Hodgkin lymphoma about five and a half years ago. I was in a few months into my PhD program. And I say this because, and I, I say this to kind of set the stage a bit more for your listeners too, and that no one, no one plans for a cancer diagnosis. No one expects, and especially for adolescents and young adults. And so not only is it, sh- is it a shock, 
you know, to your physical, your stress response system, but then also it's a shock to your bit. You can be, you can be a terrific budgeter and financial planner. You can, I was an economics major before I studied nursing. Um, and I was also working as a family nurse practitioner. And so I had, I had the, the knowledge and the literacy of our healthcare system. I spoke English. I, um, you know, had the economics background. I understood my health insurance or I thought I did at the time. Um, and I, I also, you know, understood the, the science behind my cancer diagnosis, but I didn't plan for a serious illness like this when I moved to New York City and I budgeted how much my rent was going to be and then how much my, you know, my medical, um, my medical coverage was. And so this, this shock that really comes in and economists call it an external shock, like a diagnosis during young adulthood, it does stay with you throughout the rest of your life. You do have to, you do change some behavioral aspects of how you budget, how you plan for the future, how you even think about future jobs. Um, a lot of my dissertation work at, um, where I did my, my PhD was on, um, how, young adults who were diagnosed with a cancer diagnosis um, changed their work-related goals and even thought about, you know, is it just, can I physically continue to do this work? No, it was more than that. Can I, do I actually want to do this work? I had studied all these years to be this. And now after going through treatment, I want to be a nurse now, or I want to work in consulting or whatever it was. But then on top of that, this question of, can I actually financially afford to continue doing this type of work or foregoing this type of work. And so I, I say all that because it's, it's definitely a reality. It's more anecdotal now and what we have from some, some preliminary qualitative data, but we don't have, um, from a research perspective, we don't have long-term or longitudinal financial toxicity data on young adult cancer survivors. So right now I can't answer the question of, you know, how are adolescent and young adult cancer survivors financially 30 or 40 years after their diagnosis? Um, That would be a dream study for me to do. (laughs) I think that um, it would be a dream R01 in the future and a goal for that Um, because we know, we know that there is some perhaps behavioral um, decision-making that is different when you experience a serious medical illness like cancer at young ad- during young adulthood. I mean, I know I, d- I have very different perspective on my relationship with my health insurance than my friends who haven't experienced serious medical issues. And um, that provides some, we can say some positive skills and tools. And I kind of know what I can advise them on how to ask questions about their insurance. But it also, um, there are some, there are some challenges to that too, with this kind of fear of, am I always going to have to plan for a relapse? Am I always going to have to plan for this to come back? And, and so there's, there's a a real, um, a real fear that happens that's tied up with money and spending. And that can be a whole other discussion on just like thinking about how young adults spend their money in our current economic (laughs) system where everything is more expensive. And so it's, it's a really, it's a really, really great question. I wish we had a whole hour devoted to that, but um, I, 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 definitely think it's something that where the research is moving toward because we do want to be able to we do want to be able to look at long-term cancer survivors and there are there are plenty and right now i think the 
um, five year plus survival rate for type of cancer that I had was Hodgkin lymphoma is around 94, 95% for this. So there's, I mean, great advancements in treatment, which also result in cancer survivors living longer. Um, but also they're living longer with this, um, with this baseline of worry and real significant worry and perhaps real significant financial hardship too. So that's where I'm hopefully going to be devoting the next 50 plus years of my career. <laughs> Lucky for us. And um, on, on a number of things you've, you've shared with us today, I was thinking how fortunate we are to have the Affordable Care Act passed in this country that allows for people to purchase insurance with a pre-existing condition without being penalized, as well as um, someone in your experience, both personally and professionally now as a scholar who's committed to this uh, area of research so that we can create behavioral um, messaging and, and advice and, uh, and, and direction for people, um, adolescents and young adults who are facing a cancer diagnosis to live very, very long lives. Um, I want to just share one quote that you gave when you were honored to be accepted as a um, stat WonderCon, which is, quote, I really want to make a way for cancer to suck less. So thank you for that great quote. Keep using it. Uh, thank you for joining us on Health Cetera today. Dr. Lauren Gazelle is a family nurse practitioner, nurse scientist, and associate professor at the University of Rochester School of Nursing. This is Barbara Glickstein. You're listening to Health Cetera.